folks, they say all good things must come to an end. What they don't tell you is that's the case with bad things, too, like this podcast. That's right. This is the final episode of the Cancel Too Soon series on Enter the Real World, where myself, Kevin Ford, and the other host of this thing, Jerome Cusan, discuss television shows that we believe might have been canceled too soon. And Jerome, after covering 13 different shows over the course of 18 different podcast episodes, this journey has come to an end. I'm feeling pretty good about it. How about you? It is. Uh, this has been a two-year journey, and it's one that I have really enjoyed for the most part. I think we've learned a lot about shows that have been canceled too soon. Uh, maybe some shows we thought were canceled too soon, but in fact were canceled at the right time. Uh, we've also gone on – if we expand this out, uh, we've looked at some of the greatest television shows of all time, and we've had a chance to uh, explore some really fun shows uh, over the course of our last four to five years here at The Real World. So it's been it's been good times, and look, without this podcast, would I have had the motivation uh, to watch Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul? I don't know, but – by God, I did it. I watched 11 seasons of that show, and it really did carry us through the pandemic in many ways. So uh, it's uh, it's been a fun journey, and uh, despite Kevin and I's underlying hostility that may come across, um, if this has been uh, a lot of fun for you and I together. And yeah, I am excited to talk about the third season of Glow, even though I think our perceptions of it might not be uh, as uh, uh, maybe our thoughts are not as um, glowing as we thought maybe. Yeah. I, what I think is most interesting is I received a text from you after episode four and it seemed like you had a change of heart because it was either, I want to say it was before we started doing these. Like it was maybe the end of our uh, mind hunter episode. You said glow might be the one that you're most angry about being canceled. And I feel like when we started season three, maybe that was no longer the case. The anger may not have been as present as you thought it was going to be. I, I still think this was canceled too soon. I do believe this show was good enough to warrant a fourth and final season, but I would also agree that, you know, maybe there are some of these other shows uh, that deserve more of an opportunity. I mean, for me, the version of the show that deserved a fourth season is what we got in episode six. Like, that is the version of the show that I want to see, where it is mostly focused on on the ladies. Like, that's that to me is the biggest thing. And we're going to get into uh, some of the, the positives and the negatives of this season but I think there's, you know, there's a couple of things that I take real issue with uh, in this series overall. But I also think that episode six laid bare the clear potential of what you do if you're just focusing on uh, the dozen or so cast members. Because, I, and I think the other problem is that with these streaming shows only being eight to ten episodes, thirty minutes, you're just not spending enough time. With these characters, like to me, this really does feel like a show that needed to have either hour long episodes or it needed like a network level run of like 20 episodes or 22 episodes to really just make us care about these characters more, give us more time to spend time with them. Because it feels like there are storylines that are set up in one episode and then don't pay off until like three episodes later. Or there's a big plot revelation and it doesn't get 
it, it doesn't get addressed again for like three or four episodes and uh, it's happening pretty consistently. And the other thing is, is that there really isn't a lot of wrestling. And I understand that those scenes have to be really hard to do and there's a lot of risk involved, but it is, it is shocking to me that they talked about close contact uh, being one of the reasons that the show was canceled. And I think there's like three episodes total that have wrestling in it. And it's just, it's really surprising to me. Yes, I think there is something to the cancellation where I'm sure the close contact played a role. But if this show wasn't as expensive as it was and it was as crazy popular as it was, it probably could have and would have survived. So I think while there is something to that, I think the real reason being the cost and everything is probably why I went down. And we'll talk about that more later. But I will say I definitely agree this was canceled too soon. I almost don't know how you could say it wasn't, especially since it was renewed for a final season and then it didn't get that. And there was all these hanging things that could have been paid off or explored better in season four. So even if it wasn't as good as I maybe remembered it being, I would definitely say it was still canceled too soon. And I think one of going back to what you said about episode six being so great is I feel like there's so much in the show that is unrealized potential that makes me wanting it to be better and maybe seeing that and hoping that it, that would eventually come to fruition in season four. But who knows? Maybe that's a fool's errand to, to think about those things. We'll never know. But yeah, I, I, I think it would be hard to say that it wasn't canceled too soon. I mean, for sure. And I think that this is the start of the trend that Netflix has, has kind of put themselves in as the as the uh, the streamer or the network that just cancels things after one season, I think that's a huge problem, and that's something that they have they have only gotten worse at. Where they're basically canceling shows left and right, they do a very poor job of marketing their shows, and it just feels like Netflix doesn't really have a brand identity beyond yes, we have Stranger Things, go watch Stranger Things, all seventeen thousand hours of it. Um, but I, and I think that's a huge that's a huge part of their problem because, you know, Netflix really want they were really horny to win like Best Picture and they put all this money into it and then Apple just did it with uh, with Coda a couple of years ago um, and yeah you know they did get some Best Director but you know they're clearly going for something and I think that in in a lot of ways Netflix has always had it has had difficulty. Uh, with their identity just beyond being uh, like a repository for when people used to just binge watch friends in the office. And they don't really have that identity of like, this is our show again, beyond something like stranger things. I mean, even a show like suits, which is extremely popular on their service. Not like that's not a Netflix branded show. And it's just it's been it's it they they've had a lot of growing pains and obviously they've they've made a ton of money and they've kind of reinvented the TV business for better and for worse but i can't there, there's also a part of me that can't help but think like if this if this show glow was a weekly release also and you had time to really think about different episodes because i also think that quite honestly i think glow actually plays better if you're watching one episode at a time, as opposed to binge watching two, um, and maybe we can get into that as we explore this, but it almost feels like this show is better off just watching like one episode a week or one episode a day, as opposed to watching the back to back to back. 
Yeah, because it almost feels like you forget some of the the holes. You don't get to see them as clear as when you go back to back to back or you're like, oh, they said this one thing that at the end of this episode, it just doesn't get paid off at all. You maybe you would forget some of those those moments if you're watching week to week. But I do think I agree with everything you said about Netflix, but I do think it kind of has the advantage now of being like the Kleenex of streaming services. Oh, let's Netflix this. Let's do that because it was first. And maybe that's going to as time goes on, that maybe won't be the case. But I still think there's a lot of people who just subscribe to it because it's Netflix and that's really all it has going for it. I agree. I mean, I think that, that that brand, because they were first, and now everybody's essentially trying to copy them, I think that's that. But And, you know, we're seeing it like HBO and Warner Brothers uh, are cutting side deals with them, and like things like Ballers and Insecure are going up on Netflix now, which, I mean, so the walls are, are definitely coming down to an extent, and... Um, the streaming bundle is going to be a thing, and we're going to be reinv- we're reinventing TV, Kevin. That's all. That's all we're doing, and it's just really unfortunate that Glow, when it first started, came at this perfect time when seemingly everything was getting the opportunity, and as it ended, it was definitely the ending of something as well because it, um, you know, this ended partially because of the pandemic, and yeah, it's just it sucks all the way around. It really. I don't know what to what, what else we could say before uh, before actually getting into uh, the season itself. Well, you bring up something that just makes me sad. The the, the future of television is going to be that these bundled streaming services is basically going to be like the new version of cable, which we've all tried to get away from. Yeah, and I I mean I don't even know like what what is that even going to look like? I mean, how are we are we going to even have physical televisions and like are we just going to be doing everything on our phone or tablet or whatever? I don't know, man. It's uh it's it's a it's a it's a very strange new world and that's all I could say. What I did forget about going into season 4 is that Kia Stevens was actually hired by AEW, the new wrestling outfit, just a few months before this season even premiered. So I forgot that she was back as a pro wrestler when this was on the air. The weekly AEW show hadn't happened yet. It was a couple months away, but yeah, I, I kind of forgot that, oh yeah, she is wrestling at the same time this Netflix show was going, and I, you know, I couldn't, that could have only helped, I think, promotion for especially a season four. I would agree. I mean, Awesome Kong was is a tremendous performer i think that her best work is in impact wrestling when she Mm -hmm. was wrestling gail kim and it's it's just one of those things because tna and impact they have such a negative stain that it's really hard to you know say positive things about them but i would say that the way that they treat their women even to this day is better than any major promotion AEW or wwe they they do a tremendous job of emphasizing uh, their female roster, and I'm sure a lot of that is out of necessity. But even the fact that you could go to it, you could watch an Impact show, and you could look at the card, and you're going to see two or three women's matches, and you're going to see them in the main event in many cases, and the women's title being uh, as as equal to. So it's pretty phenomenal, and Awesome Kong is definitely a huge reason for that. And it, it's just unfortunate, you know, with her injury problems and uh, some of the consistency, inconsistency. It's it just it's sad to me that Awesome Kong is never going to get the credit that she deserves as either a wrestler or an actor because I think she's really good at both. 
Yes, and uh, again, yeah, I think your point is true in the fact that I completely forgot that she was even in uh, AEW. Uh, but she was inducted into the uh, the the Impact Wrestling Hall of Fame. So that's pretty awesome for whatever that's worth. But yeah, they're the company that actually has a woman in charge of their women's promotion. They put multiple matches on their shows and pay-per-views. So yeah, I definitely agree with you. Uh, but as for the show itself, season three, as you said, it, it dropped all at once, all 10 episodes like the previous two seasons on August 9th, 2019. And I have a note just up top that I feel like the production – was better for the show. I don't know if it had to do with them being in in Vegas versus a gym or something, but I do feel like things looked a little more smoother, brighter, maybe popped a little more than they did in season one or two. Am I making this up? No, I think it's. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they are in a Vegas hotel. I'm assuming they did not film this in Vegas. They probably did production in California. I would assume, but I think you're right that the fact that they're not shooting in a dingy gym and they're in a in a theater, I think it makes a huge difference in the look of the show. And they're shooting in a quote-unquote Vegas hotel as opposed to a crappy motel. I think that has a lot to do with it as well. So I don't know if this season was any more expensive, but it looks more expensive because I think the show is making a conscious choice of we are shooting in Vegas at nicer hotels in a theater. So I'm sure that has a lot to do with it. And I did look it up real quickly. They filmed in Ontario, California, which is just east of L.A., and they filmed by the airport out there. So, yes, they had to more or less recreate Vegas, not too far from Vegas, still in the still on the West Coast, but still impressive. Nonetheless, not do it in Vegas proper. And as we saw at the end of season two, the show was off the air on, on television and they could not bring those characters to another television show because that network owned everything. But they could do a stage show with all the same characters since it was not televised and they got residency at a hotel and casino in Las Vegas, Nevada, the Fantan Hotel, as we come to know. And that's where the majority of the show takes place, the scenes inside of the casino, in the hotel rooms, all that stuff. Quite the way to start the season where you have uh, a real-life incident coming here. The, the entirety of the season takes place in 1986. And we start in January of 1986 with Liberty Bell and Zoya talking over what was to be a a big day for the U.S. with the space shuttle Challenger. That, of course, turned into a tragedy as it broke apart 73 seconds after launch and killed all seven crew members. And that's how episode one takes it. Maybe just a general question for you, but I, I, I think we talked about like with Party Down, it was kind of fun how they use like the COVID pandemic to play into the show. Uh, how did you feel about them bringing in this space shuttle Challenger tragedy in episode one? I mean, I think there's a gallows humor element to it. I know, I don't know if you've ever seen or how much of South Park you've seen, but they had this episode uh, where they they were they were referencing like how long would it be okay before they can make jokes about AIDS? And it feels like there's like a certain amount of time, and it feels like if this show were made in 1989, you probably would not be able to have gallows humor related to the Challenger, but because we have so much more distance from it, it feels much more appropriate. So, yeah, I think I think it works. And again, this isn't something that you could do like three or four years after, but seems very, very appropriate. I mean, party down, I think the way that they handled the pandemic was pretty spectacular. And I think similarly, I think the way the glow handles uh, the Challenger explosion is it's also uh, very 
very uh, amusing probably isn't the best word given what happened but i think they handled it really really well and uh here's a here's a fun 1986 fact about the about this kevin uh this was also just days after the chicago bears only super bowl and uh they were supposed to visit ronald reagan either on this day or a few days after and they never did it uh because uh, they were never able to reschedule it so uh, there's a fun fact for you have the bears won the super bowl since uh, they have not, and Seth Rollins hates football. Is uh, is this possibly why they have not won the Super Bowl since? Uh, it's it is certainly possible. Uh, it also might be it might also be because the uh, the ownership, uh, coaches, general managers, and players have not been very good. There is one major character that is introduced in season three. That is Sandy Devereaux St. Clair. She's the entertainment director at the Hotel and Casino and a former showgirl herself, and she is played by the wonderful. Gina Davis and Gina Davis is a great casting because it's very much like, you know, she was a big, a big name in the mid to late eighties and some early nineties stuff. So obviously she fits the the time that this show is taking place. But what I found really interesting was at the same time, this show that's very much about women empowerment and featuring an all female cast. She had just put out a documentary in 2018 called this changes everything, which is this exploration of the the gender dynamic in Hollywood. And then later after this season airs a couple months later, she actually wins the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences Award with the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award for this film. And it got a lot of attention and it was a really cool thing, uh, I think, for her to have this movie come out and then be part of a show that is basically – I don't want to say rectifying, but doing a lot of the right things that Hollywood has in the past. And the the fact that she got to be part of that to me is really cool. I think her character is inconsistent across the season. I mean, you could say that with a lot of characters, but I like that she's in the show. And in general, I like the character she plays. It was it was great to see Gina Davis, at least for me. What did you think? I like Gina Davis a lot. I would agree that that having Gina Davis as a part of the cast is is cool, but I'm not sure how much they actually did with with it. It just feels like if you're going to bring her on, then put her in more episodes and have her do more things. But again, there's too many other characters, and I think that's that's part of the issue. I do appreciate her presence. I think the fact that she was in a league of their own, I would assume, is a big reason for her presence in this show as well. And uh, yeah, I think that you know, just in terms of who she is as a person, she's uh, she's a pretty great actor. And again, with what they give her to do. I think she does a very solid job. And that's really all I could say because, again, the show really doesn't know what to do with her at times. And it really feels like the main reason that they cast her was for her big singing number uh, in episode eight or nine. I forget. I think it's nine. I think it's nine. Yeah. And you know what? Like, might be worth it to have done that just to get that scene. It's pretty powerful. Pretty great. What I do like here is you're going to get a lot of like these issues with relationships and stuff going throughout the season. And I like that they're all different, how how things come to be. But I also like that we ended season two with Bash and Rhonda getting married, because basically as a green card marriage. And it seems like they're, they, they get along and things are going well. And Rhonda finally tells Bash that she loves him. And it's clear she very much cares about him because he's stressing out over this after party and stuff. Um and you see, like, Bash is kind of trying to learn how to be a caretaker and a husband in episode two with Rhonda being sick. He did not grow up in a, in a very caring or loving home, so it's hard for him to get to that place. 
But I like that they're learning to work together and try to make the best out of their situation. And that kind of flips itself in the back half of the season. But I do like that we're going to get some rocky stuff going on with a couple other couples. So at least this one's going to be happy. It doesn't all have to be negative stuff. Yeah, I think there's a lot of really good relationship stuff in this season. I would agree with you on that. I really like the uh, – I think the Keith Carey part of it is is my favorite, but I do like that Rhonda is so much more present in this season, and we actually get to know her character a lot more. And it just sucks that – it feels like the main reason that we get to know who Rhonda's character is is because she's married to Batch. I really feel like – there, there's, there, there's, there would have been a better way, but I, I guess I'll take what I can get. I'm just glad that we got more of Rhonda and the relationship stuff. I mean, I think that the sex montage at the beginning of episode four is some of the best stuff that they've done. I mean, there's you and I love a good montage, especially after Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. And there are two spectacular montages, uh, the sex montage being one of them and uh, the other one at the beginning of, I believe, episode eight uh, with Ruth uh, kind of undoing her makeup and whatnot and just the passage of time. So, yeah, there's some good montages, some very good relationship stuff. Great to see Rhonda more involved and uh, them kind of becoming this uh, this Vegas power couple. To an extent, I agree with you that, yes, it would be great to get her known. Not just because she's married to Bash, but I like that her character is so much different than season one and even season two. And I like that she gets a lot of agency in that relationship towards the end of it. Like it's clear that she is she is an equal, if not above Bash in terms of uh, smartness and, and handling money and things of that nature. And, but I also like that she sticks up for her husband. She's very supportive. So you get almost like the two different sides of of her. Like you almost get to see one side of her as like a Debbie and the other side of her as the supportive wife. You kind of get it all uh, with Rhonda here. And I would have loved to have seen how her character grew in, in season four. So yeah, uh, big kudos to Kate Nash for, for, for killing it uh, in, in this role. Let's talk about Sherry and Keith real quick. I mean, this is really, this is sort of an interesting story because you have, it's one of those where it's like they start with, them getting in a fight because they Keith wants to start a family and so does Cherry, but talking to someone makes her realize what it does to her body. And so she maybe thinks that's not something that she wants. And then Keith bails. And so she's sort of coping with it by gambling during the few episodes, you know, the middle episodes. And she can't bring herself to read letters that Keith is sending and she's in debt. And then Keith comes back in the end and they talk about things. And what I like is – Keith talks to her about speaking to an adoption specialist. And there's a part of me that's like, you know, this could have gone either way. It could rub you the wrong way that he, that the man is sort of taking control of the situation. But what I like about it is that it seems like she still wants a family but is worried about her own body. So he has gone out of his way to find a solution to give her both things she wants. So I think the way it's played, it goes very well. And I say that because there is a way to play it where it wouldn't have gone so well, where it seems like the man is trying to take control of their relationship uh, here. But Keith and Cherry are a wonderful couple. It, the only thing that makes me sad about it is, I mean, we saw less of uh, of Keith during the season itself. But I do think that is 
that is a couple everybody I think could could get behind this season for sure. Yeah, it really feels like they they did a great job of making of organically bringing them together and then tearing them apart and bringing them together again. I think that works out just tremendously. I I love their their relationship. I think it's one, it's probably the best on the show because it just it really feels like they put in the time and put in the effort to make this feel like an authentic and real relationship. And I don't think TV shows talk about what pregnancy does to women's bodies enough. And I almost think we need more of that as, as part of the deal. And I love that it comes from um, basically Cherry is pissed that nobody is working out and that they're all staying out late and partying. And she takes them to this really hardcore dance teacher and then they're talking after and the dance teacher bringing in a bunch of kids because she's got to support herself because she had a kid and basically was not able to be a part of a Vegas show anymore. So she's got to do what she can to uh, earn some extra money. So that's that's all really great stuff. And, and that, that makes Terry realize that you know if she has a, a kid, like it's going to take her essentially out of commission for six months to a year, if not longer. So I think that is all incredibly well done. And yeah, I just – I think the one part of it is Cherry becoming addicted to gambling. Like that didn't really work out for me necessarily. It just feels Same. like it. It just felt like, oh, we're going to do this. But the weird thing is, is that it seems like Ruth is being set up to have a gambling addiction, but they very quickly shift away from it after the one time she plays blackjack. It would have actually been more interesting if they had either established Cherry as having a problem earlier or giving the problem to Ruth instead. Um, so yeah, that's, but yeah, the, the cherry, it feels like they only gave Cherry the addiction to gambling because they really wanted to do a mud wrestling scene. That's, that is my, that is pure speculation on my part, but I could have, I could have certainly done without it. And even if that's true, I do like the way that Carmen handled that, that scene. I, here's the thing. There, there are scenes in the show that I don't like, specifically this season, that I really don't like. But even in the scenes that I don't like, the performances are always spot on. I mean, Alison Brie, especially, I just think she's got a lot of material that I just don't like. But she does an unbelievable job. And we'll get to a very specific scene that I don't like, but she's so good in it that she almost brings me back. So that's how I feel. I just think the performances across the board are just unbelievably great. And that's, that's another reason that for me, the show is canceled too soon because even if the show isn't perfect, even if the show has flaws, the, the way that these actors are and knowing their characters at this point, like they deserve to, uh, this won't be the first time I say this, finish the story. I mean, to be fair, we gave the actors their, their flowers, so to speak in the first two seasons where they did the best with what they had. It was really on the writing and the directing that we kind of gave a hard time, but we've always said that these actors are great, and that continues to be true in, in season three for sure. I, uh, but the one thing I said, I'll say is that I think the the rest, as we came to call them in season two, they get so much more to do, and you realize, oh, uh, Melrose is a much better actor than I would have thought because she gets so much more to do. She actually has sort of some emotional payoffs. Yes. Yeah, and it's important to see that. And I will say I got to listen to a couple of uh, WTF episodes that came out around when the season is, and both Kate Nash and Jackie Tan have episodes, and they have incredible stories. And they both are basically like glow saved 
my career. Uh, like Kate Nash was dicked around by the music industry and lost a lot of her money and was like living at home when Glow came around. And Jackie Tan has like four or five like almost made it stories in her career from like the mid 90s up until Glow comes out and she finally lands something. And it's awesome to see that like this show, you can see why you these, you know, these women feel so strongly about it and were so sad that it didn't get its last season because for a lot of them, it was a big deal in their lives. And it's so great to see that they finally got their due in this in season three. Maybe I'm starting to get more mad about this being canceled too soon as we go through this. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's on the, in the, on the actor's behalf, because to me, it's, it's, it's a situation where if a network feels like they want to cancel a show, like they can do that. But to me, the problem always is, is like when you leave it in the middle like this, I just think it's a really, it's really shitty to treat the actors like this and not let them get to finish what they started. And especially because Netflix was always like, one of the things that they talked about was that they were not going to be just a network that cancels things after two episodes and that they were going to, going to let stories finish. And the fact that, you know, Sense8 was able to do it, uh, Wachowski show that really didn't have a lot of viewership, but they let them finish. They, they, they let them do something to finish. And it just feels like that this show did not get to that same opportunity. And look, I'm not going to say that it's, it's not going to break Netflix, but what you are doing is you are changing the relationship with your audience and you're starting to you're starting to burn bridges and maybe glow isn't going to do it but maybe you're fraying the relationship to the point where eventually people are going to be like you know what I'm sick of this I'm going to cancel uh, my subscription um so we'll see I don't know whether that'll ever be the case maybe Netflix will eventually survive on library content because um you know these network streaming services are not going anywhere so we'll see but I don't know. I'm I'm a little bit dubious of uh, Netflix's long term future. There's definitely been people who say like, "Hey, I don't I don't invest in any Netflix originals because they all get canceled so fast." So like, what's the point? That that was definitely a thought I've seen repeated several times, uh, you know, pre pandemic, and I'm sure it's not gotten much better uh, of late either. I want to talk about something else to kind of uh, something I was going to ask you about, anyways. You're a big poker guy, and there's a lot of I don't. Do you go to casinos at all, really? Once in a while. I mean, I'm not okay. a huge casino person, but I've been to Vegas multiple times. I have not so, been back since the pandemic, so I'm sure it's it's very different now. And plus, I mean, the thing about Vegas now is that Vegas is becoming less gambling oriented because sports betting is becoming legalized in so many states now. So Vegas, I think they're putting an emphasis much more. Um, this is like a Disney World. Or people are going to see like the Raiders play or they're going for the NBA All-Star game. So I think the emphasis in Vegas is slowly like not just getting away from the original point, which was kind of mob run casinos, but even getting a little bit away from the gambling itself. So, I mean, Vegas has just evolved so much. And in 1986, that that Vegas is just very different. And if you've seen Martin Scorsese's Casino, you probably can get a much better uh, picture for what Vegas was like in the 80s and how it basically evolved or, depending on your perspective, devolved into uh, something else. But, I mean, this is just a much more seedier, smokier, 
uh, kind of atmosphere. And I think that's the thing that they don't get across is if this is if this was really 1986, every single person would be smoking. And I know you, I think um, I think Sam is once in a while in the casino, but my God, I mean, it would just you would be literally walking into smoke filled rooms. I feel like. I guess just as someone who has been to Vegas and, and gambles and plays poker and stuff like that, how did you find the portrayal of the table games and things like that? I mean, I think it was I think it was fine. I think it's again, we're talking about nineteen eighty six, you know, I'm going in two thousand nine, so the casinos are so much more so much bigger. But I think in terms of representing like what would, would have been a like a small time casino, I think it feels much more appropriate. And I mean it's it's just weird to me because I mean, they they do go into the casino like once in a great while, but it doesn't. I don't really get a sense of the geography of the space, and I think that's part of the fun of having like a Vegas based season, is like going to the strip versus going downtown, and just all that entails. But they don't really do a lot of that. Um, but it's. I think it's still it still feels mostly accurate and. The the building of the house is it like that is a very real thing getting off the strip and uh, some of the some of those hotels are are pretty big and it's um it's it's wild to see just how how much that city changes from from year to year. I also want to give a quick shout out to Tammy Sager who played the uh, the the lady who, do, who at the at the craps table. She's in a couple scenes, so you don't really get to see much of her, but she is effing hilarious. She was a writer for 30 Rock, producer for How I Met Your Mother, tons of other really great things. I've listened to her on podcasts, and she is absolutely hilarious. So I, that was a, a Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the screen moment for me. But she 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 does great with the very little she gets in the season. But I just want to give her a shout out because it's not a big enough role to talk about otherwise. Here's the thing, what I Kevin. Think- I, I know you're not a big gambler, and that's probably a good thing. But <laughs> if you had a lot of money, I think you would actually enjoy craps. Because it's it's more it's I mean it's dead dead pure luck. But uh, craps is one of the most fun casino games that you can play because it is very social and it is very communal. But uh, you could you could definitely lose a lot of money very quickly. But it is a ton of fun. Am I going to turn into a Sheila? Uh, it is. Uh, it's certainly possible. You might turn into a Mark Simpson, perhaps. That would be bad. Also, it's crazy that Casino and uh, Heat came out in the same year. Uh, it's pretty wild, huh? What a year for Bobby De Niro. What a year. One thing I do think that makes the Cherry and Key situation work, especially in these early episodes, is that Debbie is an actual mother going through this separation from her child. You hear these stories all the time in wrestling, like you're on the road all these days, you miss big moments, and you miss anniversaries, you miss your friends' weddings, then you miss your kids growing up, and Debbie – is flying home on weekends to see her son, but it really is like a one, you know, one day there and then the next day back, and she misses her son's first steps, which really messes with her head and makes her wonder, you know, is it worth it? Am I going to really be in Vegas and and miss my son growing up? And I think it's important to and and Tamei has this too with her pain, showing the 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 cost, the toll of being not just a wrestler but an entertainer uh, and having to be away from your family like this so often. I I understand she's divorced, but it isn't like a quick drive away like it would be if she was still living in LA to see her son. This is a, a lot of time, multiple months that she's not going to be there for the big moments in life. And I think the scene where her and Sherry are, are smoking pot in bed and talking to each other is one of my favorites of the series. And I think her having us seeing Debbie go through 
what she is worried about, not necessarily with the body, but seeing that someone who is a theoretical mother versus an actual mother both having issues and then talking about it later made it all stick much more with me as a viewer who doesn't have that to worry about in their life. So I think that made uh, Ron or Rhonda made Cherry's situation all the more potent. I think one of the things that I want to point out is I, I appreciate the fact that we could just have drug scenes and not it not be like a thing or like they're going to get super high and they're going to go like on a drug trip. I hate I hate that stuff. I love that we could just casually like smoke marijuana now and it's like, OK, um, obviously, the, the stigma has gone away to a large extent. So it's just nice that we nice that we get those moments. And Kevin, the biggest reason that it's great for Debbie to travel back and forth is that she meets Toby Huss. And you and I Hell are yeah. big Toby Huss fans. Absolutely. Um, Toby Huss, not Ted Turner, by the way, not Ted Turner. That's funny because I feel like you said he was Ted Turner. I mean, it, the fact that they're both from Wyoming and they both started off by buying radio stations. But he's not Ted Turner. He's not in the wrestling business. Not yet. That I 100% feel like that was going to be a season four thing if that came to be. Or at least it should have been. But yes, Toby Huss is in this. You know, we we fawned over him in our Halt and Catch Fire series, also available on the Enter the Real World podcast. I I did sort of forget that he was in the season, and I forgot that he was in it as much as he is. But I like their interaction on the plane. I like that he just seems like a, a well-to-do business gentleman on the flight, and then they interact in Vegas, and you learn, you know, he's a big deal. And it's interesting because you have two relationships blossoming between a very younger woman and an older man. And for some reason, like in real life, Mark Marin is older than Toby Huss, but I don't get that impression just watching them in the show. But it's interesting to see two different portrayals of these mixed age couples going on at the same time. And one's blossoming. One is not even really starting. It's a weird emotional powder keg. How do you take that? Having two such I, I'm really glad you guys. brought this up because I was going to bring this up at some point. Having the two lead characters both going after older men is just kind of icky, especially because they did like uh, uh, do a – surface level connection to the me too movement in season two. And it just feels really, it feels really strange that this is the direction that they decide to go in. And I don't know. It just feels like I, I really wish there were, that they had found kind of another way around this because it just, it feels, it feels not great because again, it's both of you, like your top two characters are both not in the same situation, but they're both in love with, powerful older men and it just feels like you're kind of being thematically inconsistent when on the one hand you're you're talking about women's empowerment but then on the other your top two leads are in love with older dudes and there's nothing wrong with that inherently but if you're gonna if you're gonna have this thematic element to it then i think you have to you have to be careful about what kind of relationships you are establishing but it does make me appreciate what Debbie does in the last episode. I mean, it's very it, – that, that is very halt and catch fire. Like the, the last episode and even Debbie and Ruth's interaction it reminded me a lot of halt and catch fire. That's a good – that's a good point. 
Yeah, and uh, well, the one, the other thing that I want to point out about Toby Huss, and this has nothing to do with Glow, seemingly, but I, I think it's uh, maybe a good thing that he wasn't in the episodes uh, where they talked about uh, Fortune Cookie and uh, playing a oh racist stereotype and using the voice. Uh, probably a good <laughs> idea to keep Toby Huss away from those episodes if you if you catch my drift. Probably a good thing, uh, and I guess we could talk about Ruth and Sam here in episode two. You talked about how. Uh, so Sam, I guess, has sworn off gambling because he's got enough vices as it is, but he has Ruth gamble on his behalf as sort of like a way to circumvent this. Uh, they also have, I think, a little bit of an interaction in episode one. Um, oh yeah, they have like a post-show drink in his hotel room, and Ruth's also down because she's still dating Russell who couldn't make it to the premiere. And this is when Sam basically lays all his cards on the table saying like, hey, I've, I've fallen in love with you. This this connection we have has made it hard to maintain some boundaries, and he kind of thinks that there could be a future with them, but Ruth shuts it down, doesn't want to ruin what they have, but obviously gives her something to think about, especially in episode four when Russell comes to visit and it's very awkward. I didn't love the Russell stuff in this season at all. I guess you had to – I mean, I don't know. Did you have to address it? Couldn't they have just broken up between seasons? I don't know. Would anyone have been sad if he didn't come back? I mean, Russell was just a nothing burger of a character. I don't know if it's just the character, if it's the performance, but yeah, they're just there. There, there was, there was no there there. Like, here's the thing: I, I can not like the Sam Ruth relationship or the romantic element, but I can also say that they do have chemistry together. Um, I think both of those things can be true. I do think that even uh, my feelings aside, Mark Marin and Allison Brie their performances together are always very good. Like it's never un- at least it's not unwatchable. Like if it makes me feel icky, at least the acting is good. A hundred percent. And I do feel like I can at least understand why those two characters would have admiration for each other um, yes. and why Sam would fall in love with her and vice versa. I can at least see that with Russell. It's just a, like, he's just a dude. I'm like, I hate to be a jerk about it, but I just feel like he shows up and they feel like they're just like bored together. It's like what's going on here? Um, yeah, I don't. There's there is absolutely no there there. The one good thing though is that when they're in the pawn shop, Ruth is wearing a fanny pack, so she has fully embraced uh, the worker lifestyle, brother. Uh yeah, she's uh, she needs eight by tens, and then she's really got she's really <laughs> in it if she's uh, selling eight by tens and uh, maybe selling uh, gear on eBay or whatever. So, yes. Uh, Unwashed though, you need all the, you need all the sniffs you can get in the gear. Oh my god, I can't cool. believe you went there. God what? damn it! What? Am I wrong? I, I never said you were, but man. Anyways, we'll talk about a, another another worker thing that needs to be addressed is the cycle of using alcohol and pain pills to get through pain. That's what Tamei is going through as her back pain is just getting worse and worse as the show goes along. That's another great montage. That's the beginning of episode five. It's just you see the night after night grind, which I think is great. You get to see Bash is doing the same intro. She slides into the ring the same way. You see her having to up the amount of red wine and uh, and pills that she's taking to to make it through the day and her showers and everything else. And just one, you get the you know, I've, I've heard it called like the Groundhog Day effect where you just do the same thing every single day and the pain just subsides. And she's just like counting down the days till the residency is over so she can get normal. But you're seeing. Like her back freeze up in an, in an earlier episode when uh, her and Sheila had an acting class and she's just doing her best to go through it. And my God, if there was ever any doubt of Kia Stevens being a great actress, 
show some people her work here in season three. She does an amazing job in these first five episodes. We saw some of that in season two, and I'm really glad they they let her fully embrace this for the first half of season one here. Uh, she is she is so good. I, I really I really hope that she can find something else and get on another show because I just I just have tremendous admiration for her acting work and as as much as I like her as a wrestler, I just think that you see just a completely different side of her. Like you see the sensitive side, you see the warmth, and it's just it's all there. Like if you if you would if you look at that cast and you're like one of these was not an actor, I don't know that you would identify Kia Stevens as the one who had never acted before because if she just fits right in. Uh, you, you have to attribute some of that to just casting in general and just bringing them together. But yeah, Kian Stevens is so, so good. And again, that's the, that's the thing about the show is that for all of its flaws, I mean, you're going to get some of those things like the Sam and Ruth stuff that just doesn't work. But then you get this montage that just spectacularly lays out everything that Tammy is going through and just the struggles. And I just, I really wish that we had more in the second half with her. Like she becomes a manager and then she kind of disappears for three episodes and it would have just been nice to have more of her in the second half, but a great, great montage that leads. I mean, as much as I like episode six, episode five is also really, really fun. It's, it's, it's so fun. And that's the thing is like, it's just an episode that makes me smile and and has me, as a good time when they all do the character switches and put on this different show. It's like, it's a time in the, in the show where it feels like, you know, they're getting close to, you know, they're, they're close to the end. It's been the same thing every night. And I'm sure like, even if you're making money or whatever, like, and, and it's fun and it is what it is like, it, it's gotta be rope doing the same thing all the time. So now you get everybody doing, you do the, they do a freaky Tuesday show as they call it, where everybody does, Different characters like Debbie and Ruth switch Liberty Bell and Zoya. Uh, you have Carmen doing Welfare Queen, and they all kill it. it and it's so fun to see. Uh, but uh, maybe it doesn't go so well when you have someone like Melrose playing Fortune Cookie. Um, you know the the amazing thing to me is just how acceptable and how long Asian racism has been. Like, okay like yes. even how i met your mother had yellow face and it's just it's bizarre to me just how acceptable it's been and like even now i mean we have mostly gotten away from it but man just even watching that scene from how i met your mother is just really uncomfortable and even a even a show like king of the hill a show that i really like i mean you had a white person again toby huss doing the voice of an asian character and not not okay. Not okay. Heck, we just had it a little bit in a Pushing Daisies episode we talked about. Yeah, we we absolutely did, and I, I'm glad that the show took it head on. I wish that they had done even more uh, with Jenny, but I think there was there was at least um, an attempt at cultural understanding that gets paid off in the next episode in a really powerful moment. So uh, it was it's it was it was. A, it was worthwhile, I would say, to, to do that and to kind of address it uh, head on. But uh, the funniest thing to me always is, is that fortune cookies are an American invention, not a Chinese invention. Never forget that. They also taste great. We did. We do have to mention in episode four, first, another great montage here. And we get the introduction of 
uh, Bobby Barnes, a female impersonator in the hotel who the girls go to see. And it's funny because you get to see like the, the beginnings of Bash not being great with his money where he's like hiring a magician on, on site, hiring jugglers on site. And Sheila sees something in Bobby and Bash doesn't want to invest in them. Uh, but the one thing that is really worthwhile with Bobby here is the relationship that he builds with Sheila and he gets her to break out of her shell and even take off her wig in front of him so he can treat it. And then episode five, he does her up like Liza Minnelli and she gets to have that performance in front of everybody in episode five for the freaky Tuesday stuff. And I really like the directions Sheila's character took in this season. And I wish we did get to see more. But it is jarring, you know, as it is jarring to the characters, it also is jarring for us to see her outside of that wolf get up, too. And it does feel like a big moment when she takes off her wig and gives it to Bobby and then appears as Liza in this episode. I mean, the one thing I could say is that Sheila's wig, uh, whether on purpose or not, it's definitely not the worst wig in this season. That's for sure. Now, would the worst wig also appear in episode five with the return of Justine? Oh, my God. It's infuriating. I don't understand how it's so season one. It was bad. Season two looked like her natural hair. And I'm like, okay, let's go with that. And what are they doing in season three? Just, just the worst. I do like Justine in season three though. Her, her character arc with Sam. I, I'm not as convinced and we'll get into it later, but let's, okay. let's talk about, I'm going to get back to Sheila because I love the turn that her character takes. I think she is, she's so, so good in this role. And um, the performance that she does is Liza Minnelli. I would love to know where that came from. Like, was she known for, like, doing impressions? Or was this just kind of something that they wrote for her? Because, I mean, it's it's pretty spectacular. And uh, in drag culture, I know Liza Minnelli is a very off-impersonated uh, uh, individual. So it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, she is really, really good. And uh, some of the references that they make in the ring are are also really good. And it's just it's funny to me that like Liza Minnelli is such a punchline, and it feels like if people remember her, like, and even at this point, it's for Arrested Development, and they don't remember the fact that she was like in two of the best musicals of the 1970s, and you know was in Cabaret and uh, a Scorsese movie. It's just it's really it's 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 amusing to me. Um, and kind of sad that Liza Minnelli, uh, not as well remembered, uh, perhaps for her work as uh, she should be. Uh, I mean, she was fantastic on Arrested Development. I mean, that's my big uh, frame of reference for her, of course. As always, uh, everybody in the first three seasons of Arrested Development is fantastic. Well, there were more than three seasons? Nope, there were not. Good. Just wanted to check there. But yeah, I think it really is just like, a, you know, Liza Minnelli was such a huge part of drag culture in the 80s in Vegas, and that's why Sheila took it on. But we did also see in one of those episodes with Tamay in the acting classes that she is a phenomenal screen reader. So uh, good for her. Tremendous. Now, yeah. I mean, just I love the Sheila stuff. It's it's so good. I also think it's very realistic that Bash, like, hates the Freaky Tuesday episode because it's not his vision. And he, like, angry extends the entire rest of glow throughout uh the rest of 1986 without talking to anybody because hey f you it's my show harsh ending to episode five but i to me it very it feels very true of someone who is a creative that that would do that in that uh, as a response to that situation i would agree with you and something that i've been you know i've heard some podcasts go go talk about this and 
uh, have been reading about this, but, you know, it shows like Succession and House of Usher, this idea of these these very rich families. And the idea that in, in a lot of ways, rich people at this stage are not creating things. I mean, Steve Jobs has a reputation for being the leader of Apple, but he wasn't an engineer. He didn't actually create anything. And I think you look at at Succession. I'm not. I will not spoil any element of Succession. But just speaking about the show generally, like the 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 family, the Lo- the Roys, they don't create anything. They're just wealthy, and they create more wealth for themselves. And I think the same is true of Bash. Bash isn't a creative voice. Like he, yes, he does the announcing, but he doesn't really do uh, the creative work that's involved. And I think that's a, always a fascinating dichotomy when you have this rich person and the clashes that they have with the, the creatives. And I mean, I think but part of what makes that, what makes it unique is that for, for all of the awful, terrible things that, that Vince McMahon has done, the one thing that you can say is that he has had a very, a strong creative voice and has been very involved in his product. So it would have been interesting. Again, I, I, I bemoan this in, in the previous seasons to see Bash as more of a creative voice because I just think it would have been a more interesting um, connection because I also, again, even in this season, I still don't understand why women's wrestling like that, that answer never ever becomes clear to me. And when he's invested, he, he starts investing in some of the other shows. It's like, why is he doing this? Like I get, I almost get the musician more than Rhapsody because like he's easily amused by magicians, but I just, I, I wish Bash's character motivations were sometimes a little bit more clear. Like, I think the stuff with Rhonda is really good. Um, even the scene that at the end of episode five, it sets up episode six extremely well. But yeah, I just, the bat, the bat character is one. I never felt like the show cracked. What are you talking about? The man who, who decided to put showgirls with BMX. Now that is a visionary. I mean, that's, that is the scene that I was thinking about. Um, the, the the podcast episodes and some of the writing that I've been reading just about, you know, rich people not creating anything. I mean, this is the equivalent of like Elon Musk saying, uh, I'm going to turn Twitter into X or, you know, whatever other dumb rich person idea that that you can come up with. Right. Just doing shit to do it. Well, let's finally talk about episode six, Outward Bound. Maybe the best episode of the entire series. I think it's easily the best episode of the series. I don't okay. think it's really close. I could see, you know, preferential wise, if you wanted to say like the episode in season two where they actually do an episode of Glow or like the Tame and Debbie episode. There's some I could if you say that's your favorite, I'm not going to argue with you at all, but I will. So Kevin can be nice, but I won't be. Well, well, I think there is also a difference between your favorite episode and the best episode. I think yeah, I mean to me I just feel like this episode gets at the heart of what in many ways the show should have been. And I also think it's it's very important to point out that I think it's like 42 or 43 minutes long. I think that adds some credibility to what you're saying about giving it more time or doing this is was maybe necessary to explore so much as characters because it feels like everybody gets to do something 
in this episode and as part of the conversation. All the girls get something. Even Viking gets to do something finally. <laughs> I know. Poor Reggie gets like nothing for like three seasons. Like she gets fired and brought back and then nothing I to do. I do not understand. I don't understand it. Yeah, I don't either. But it's like you get – uh, you know, Debbie and Ruth get lost and they have this conversation where Debbie says, you know, Ruth should maybe just go with it, go for it when it's Sam, you know, kind of giving her empowerment to do that. Tam A thinks about maybe becoming a manager when Carmen explains that concept to her instead of having to wrestle. You know, poor Rhonda has to be the one to defend Bash when he's piled on by the girls and rightfully so. But that obviously puts her in an awkward position. And Carmen talked about this a little bit in another episode, but this is where she really gets to talk about the loneliness she's felt ever since Rhonda moved out to live with Bash, you know, not having any male suitors and things like that. And they get to reconnect. Uh, you get the biddies making about Artie and Yolanda for being lesbians and Artie takes it in stride and Yolanda doesn't like that and how Artie isn't really taking ownership over her sexuality. But obviously I think the biggest two here are Sheila throwing her wig and wolf poncho into a campfire and deciding to move on to other things in her life. That motivates Ruth when she gets back to try to go find Sam in his hotel room to find out that he has moved out of Vegas and back to L.A. And then the 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 campfire scene with Jenny and Melrose, as Jenny has been giving Melrose the cold shoulder because she was offended about her portrayal of fortune cookie. And it's over the campfire where, you know, Melrose gets to share about the oppression her family went through as people of Jewish faith and how Jenny can relate to that uh, with what her family has gone through. And this gets them to open up and embrace one another. Uh, something else Jackie Tan got to mention is that she got to use uh, the name of a real family member of hers in her speech, talking about the oppression of of her family in the show. So incredibly powerful stuff from the show. And what an episode, man. And it, and it does a really great job of setting up a lot of these characters' trajectories for, for the rest of uh, the back half of the, of the season. I think you just laid out really well the dynamics. And I don't really have a lot to add. I mean, I just think that this is a this is a really good, specific episode of television that really gets to the heart of all of these characters and really makes you appreciate uh, who they are. And it just feels like everybody has room to breathe. It just feels like everybody has something to do. The moments are not wasted. It just feels like the best version of what this show could be. And, you know, I, I love the fact that Carmen talks about not having male suitors, but I think coming off of this episode, they do mention that Carmen starts dating. Why don't we actually see who Carmen is dating. Like I, I would have loved to have seen that a uh, better followed up on. And Tammy is a manager, like follow up on that too. Like, how is that going? Like, what is she able to do as a manager uh, that, you know, she is a to kind of making up for the fact that she can't be a wrestler. So I, I, I think that in the moment, it's a great episode, but I think there's those things that they should have followed up on even more. And Melrose has a kind of a weird subplot where she is sort of dating a, a male sex worker, which <laughs> is fine. Like, it's great that they're doing that, but it just feels like Melrose and Carrie had this thing in season one, never, ever gets addressed again. I don't even think Carrie and Melrose ever share a scene together. And it just feels like it feels like that's something that should have been addressed at some point or they should have had a moment or something. Right. Right. I agree with that. And I do think it is very funny in that episode when it happens when she thinks the male prostitute thinks that she's a prostitute and is going to have sex with him and try to get paid. And then 
he ends up being a real prostitute and she has to pay him. And it's very funny in the moment, but I like that Melrose kind of takes control of it. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to still see him and, and sleep with him and kind of get the best of both worlds. I can be my own independent self and have fun. And then when I, you know, need some companionship, I have that right there. And, you know, with her driving the limo and stuff, she obviously has the the finances to have such a life. Uh, but I kind of love that she takes control of the situation. So there is something to that that I that I kind of like. And, and I and it is a little bit of a deus ex machina to get us to where we are with Ron and Bash later. Uh, but it's there and it's kind of fun. There are two things that I do want to address that are also dropped before we go on to the, to the last four episodes. But what did you want to say? No, I mean, I think episode six is just the, a real standout. And I think it, it is not a bottle episode, but I think it captures the spirit of what a bottle episode is, that you're putting yes. these characters in a room. And in this case, it's not a room, but they're outside in this vast vista. But um, it's it's very cool. And uh, it's one of the it's not it's other than Breaking Bad, maybe one of the best things ever shot in a desert, I guess. Right. I'd say it's up there. I don't know everything that was shot in the desert off the top of my head. Not quite Ozymandias, but... So the two things that were dropped, one's not a big deal at all, but they talk about the search for a referee with Keith leaving, and they need a new referee, and uh, Sam takes that role. But they had a Carlito, Big Kurt Jackson, in there for an episode, and nothing really comes of that on screen. That's not a big deal. But the other one that was really striking to me is so odd is the episode that ends where uh, Debbie's having concerns over her body and she makes herself throw up. So it's like, okay, she's going to become anorexic, bulimic. Where, where are we going with this? And then we never hear about it again. So why did we even have this in here? Yeah. That's something that they should have addressed better. Like if you're going to have her puke, like you have to do something with it. You can't just be like, well, that's the end of that <laughs> chapter. Like that's what they're doing. They're, right. mean, like, that's, that's the end of that chapter. Like I was expecting her to like faint in the ring or something or something to come of this, but no, it just doesn't feels ever like, come feels up. Feels like something. It feels like maybe a plot line got exnade from episodes and they either didn't cut it or couldn't cut it or something happened. Right. Well, we do have other health issues to address, so maybe they didn't want to overwhelm us with that. And that's Sam having heart issues. He's playing tennis with the Sklar brothers of all people, sort of wrestling adjacent celebrities in episode three, and he is going to try to ditch the cigarettes and can't. Uh, but then he has a heart attack when he is shopping around Justine's script at TriStar and then at another studio where they accept her script. He's too proud to tell Justine that he's in pain, which I can I can, I can can relate to. I think a lot of people can relate to that. And he goes to the hospital and gets it all worked out and he has to make a lifestyle change. But then when he gets home and Justine tells him that, hey, not only did they get my script, but it's on the condition that you direct the movie – uh, he has a shot of whiskey to celebrate. So not only is he not going to tell her about it, but he's going to outwardly hide and maybe not make the adjustments we think. And we don't really get much of this going on here, but maybe that is one of the reasons they dropped the the Debbie thing is they thought too much health stuff going on. But then I just wouldn't have had that scene at all. I know. And it's like, are you going to kill Sam next season or something? Is that where we're headed with this? I mean, we're never – gonna know but it just feels like that is a very bizarre thing to do and not to really come back to it yeah it is very bizarre and you know what it seems like she's eating dinner just fine with Tex at the hibachi restaurant so hey maybe maybe it's uh maybe it's toby huss that turns her around i mean toby huss would turn a lot of things around he's very magical and then this episode seven is where we get to see kind of ronda break out from the role of just being bash's wife where 
she gets to meet Birdie, her mom. And Birdie is, of course, worried that Rhonda's only in it for the money, especially when she finds out it's a green card marriage and, you know, Rhonda's scared to death of her. But she realizes that not only is Rhonda not there for his money, but recognizes that Bash has his own faults when it comes to spending his money, that he's not good with it. And you know what, Jerome? I think Rhonda hit all the right taste clusters for Birdie because she unlocks all of his fortune for her. God damn it. I mean, it was going to come up, but <laughs> god damn it. I, yeah. This is a great payoff for Birdie. I, the, the character has, has not really done much for me. She feels a bit one note, but this was a great final appearance. This actually, like, this is this is the final season, but in terms of, like, the Birdie character, this actually feels like the one thing that they truly were able to pay off. And if we did not see Birdie in season four, I think it would have been okay. Like, this feels like a logical endpoint for the relationship on screen. I mean, yeah, Elizabeth Perkins basically plays Celia Hodes from Weeds again in this show, but she's great in she that is, role. She has done this. She has done the rich woman character in, like, 16 different TV shows. And don't forget, she was a Wilma Flintstone to John Goodman's Fred Flintstone. How could we forget? How could you forget, Jerome? I mean, uh, I don't know. I, that's it's a it's a movie I saw in at a drive through at a drive in theater like thirty years ago. At this point, I think I saw that in theaters back in the day. I definitely had the toys. Anyways, I do like. There's a line that when they're all uh, gambling down there, Cherry says something about how everybody's afraid of something. I think that's true. There's, there's some really good lines in here. Yeah, Carrie, Carrie said that, and it's absolutely true. Uh, yeah, I think you mentioned the the episode eight montage. This is the one with Ruth removing makeup as the whole world kind of passes her by, and that's very much where her headspace is. And we're jumping ahead from they're starting the celebration of fifty shows when this montage begins, and by the time it ends, they're now at two hundred shows, and we're in December of nineteen eighty six. I like this because Ruth is looking around and. People have new relationships. People have new ambitions. You know, they're all pretty happy together. And Ruth just kind of feels like, here I am writing show reports. Nothing's really happening for me. And she's really questioning about what the next stages in her life are. She's got this thing maybe going on with Sam. She's at a crossroads with Russell. She's looking at the potential end of Glow. Although it feels like maybe Glow is now into perpetuity. They they don't really tell us that, but the idea is that they're going to go on a holiday break and come back. And I think she's really realizing, like, is this going to be the death of my acting career if I just don't make any changes? And the payoff for that in episode 10 is wonderful, but this montage is an exceptional part of the show. It uh, it reminded me visually of a Bo- of the BoJack Horseman opening. I don't know if you got that same vibe. Have you watched I, BoJack I can Horseman? see that. I love BoJack Horseman, yes. Man, I'm, now I'm thinking about how I want to go back and just watch the, the underwater episode where everything's silent. But yes, I, I can see that vibe for sure. Uh, yeah, I think episode eight is is pretty good, is very very good. I, you know, this is probably my third favorite episode of the season. I think it does a lot of really smart, good things. Uh, the Debbie Bruce stuff is really good in this episode, and just the way that they set everything up. Uh, is, and I, you know, the BMX stuff is horrifying, but it's also great in how horrifying it is. And just the look on Gina Davis's face when Back is talking about putting BMX in a showgirl show—it's so uh, it's pretty great. It's it's that's, so good. That's another great line where he's like, "Nobody's ever done that before." And Gina Davis is like, "You think there might be a reason for that?" She's I mean, like, "This is what rich people do. They come up with stupid ideas, and people have to indulge them because fucking rich people." Gina Davis needed to give him a hearty bless your heart. Oh, that would have been perfect. Or just. 
kill him like Thelma and Louise? <laughs> could do that, but she feels like a, a tried and true bless your heart kind of person. Um, I could see that. I think you're but right. It, but it's great to see how sometimes her character, like, she looks like she's all put together. She, you know, she dresses well, presents herself really well. But at the same time, she's like one sponsor away from pulling out and going broke. So she has to bend to his whim or else you've got 80 showgirls out of work and things like that. So it's another great look into the the behind the scenes of the showbiz portion of this. And you also see here that Bash and Rhonda, they're looking while they're settling down in Vegas and investing in the second show, their sex life is taking a hit, which doesn't seem to bother Bash too much, but it does Rhonda. Hmm, I wonder why that is. And what I do like in this episode, too, is how they have where Ruth is feeling stuck and she agrees to do this scene with Sheila for Bobby Barnes's ball. That gets Ruth to talk to Debbie about her life situation and run scenes together, which gets Debbie to talk to Bobby and agree to run his show for free on his behalf and even getting them a sponsorship. So she's starting to get a taste for producing and running shows uh, as well. So I like how. You get those connections and you get those three characters going and it leads to something that's going to pay off in the end. Just really good storytelling in episode eight overall. Yeah, I, I really did appreciate what they did in episode in episode eight. I think it really sets up the next two episodes well. It's just unfortunate that episode nine is bad. And this is <laughs> this is where I will talk about the Justine plotline. So okay. I'll let you talk about episode nine first. Well, I will, I will, before we leave episode eight, say that like, you may not like the mud wrestling thing. And I completely understand why, but I do like that. It's this, it's the freaky Tuesday concept. And then the Christmas concept in episode 10, where you get all of these, all of these looks at Carmen's mind for pro wrestling and show and showmanship and how like, man, she is, she is smart and can really make a go at this. Which again, pays absolutely. Off the car, the, car, the car, from a character standpoint, Carmen specifically, it's awesome. It's really great. I'm glad that she does get more to do uh, in the second half of the season and getting to show her uh, creative side. Uh, maybe maybe Fritz can bring her in to uh, freshen up the territory, huh? Yeah, uh, I would say stay away, Carmen. Stay far away. Uh, yeah, 1986. Not a good year for the uh, Von Eric family. That's for sure. Uh, yeah, uh, go see the Iron Claw in a week or two, uh, if you get the chance. So is yep. episode nine for you almost like a tale of two episodes? Like you have the Justine and Ruth stuff, and then you have the ball itself. Cause I feel like the ball stuff is actually good. The balls, the, uh, the charity ball stuff is really good. Uh, Toby house has a great acting moment, I would say. So let's, let's, let's talk. How about we talk about the ball first let's so that we it. can start out positive. Um, okay. So Debbie is, is successfully throws the charity ball on Bobby Barnes's behalf, and she actually lies to Tex about what she's doing that night. But just because she doesn't think this drag show over the top thing is something that's going to be his style, and Tex ends up showing up to support her as a surprise. So that is a good character moment for this. And Ruth and Sheila are supposed to do their two person show here, but Ruth is in L.A. for this, so Sheila is left to monologue. And this is where you get the dance from Gina Davis and then a fire starts during the, that portion of the show. And that's when they get outside and Artie sees all of the hate speech uh, written in chalk and spray paint all over. Cause she's also, you know, really down about Yolanda breaking up with her and seeing it's for good. And she's, you know, kind of questioning herself and what this all means. And she's really hurt seeing Yolanda with another woman at the ball. And, her seeing all this hate speech and then seeing Yolanda outside the building and the fire being started all sort of gets the synapses is going and all connected for her uh, 
and what she says in, in episode 10. So you get this ball going off without a hitch until there is a hitch and bigots shut it down. So that's the, the ball portion of the episode. Yeah, it's just it's really well done. The Sheila stuff is great uh, with her monologue. Uh, Toby Huss, as I mentioned a couple minutes ago, just the way that he plays, uh, why he's there and talking about his nephew. It's it's subtle. It's it's so well done. It just sucks to me that they have this wonderful scene in this. And then the next scene is essentially a breakup. I just again, the problem when you have 10 episodes, you really can't you can't like have a transition or like a delusion of a relationship. And it just feels like they go from one extreme to the next. And, uh, but yeah, this is a, it's a great moment for him. And uh, just, I, I really do appreciate what they, what they were able to do. And I think it is appropriate uh, to show kind of the bigotry. I think that it, it is, it is certainly fair game, especially in the 1980s, especially with AIDS. Um, it's something that they've certainly t- addressed a little bit in season two, doing so again in season three. Uh, but you mentioned having a Leonardo DiCaprio uh, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood point at the screen. Uh, when I heard a certain song at the end of this episode, Kevin, I I almost, I lost it. I was like, I cannot believe what I'm hearing right now. If there was ever a way to show the value that exists between the popularity of Stranger Things and Glow, and perhaps the promotional power behind both of them too. It's that episode nine ends with the credits of running up that hill by Kate Bush and no penetration of at all when this happens. But then it is heavily featured in the fourth season of Stranger Things and becomes a monster on the charts in summer of 2022. But I did not remember it being in this show either. No, I mean, I mean, it literally became the song of the summer, like this 40 year old song. And I'm really glad that Kate Bush got to make a ton of money from it because it's it's a really great song. I'm not by by any means a huge music person. I mean, but that it is straight up an excellent, excellent song that I think serves both shows extremely well. But obviously in Stranger Things, you hear it so much more. Like, you do hear it a little bit at the end, but you don't really get into the lyrics as much. But, I mean, the way it's used in Stranger Things is pretty much perfection. And just consistently playing it, and just thematically it works out really well. And, yeah, I'm not sure thematically if it works as well, but it was uh, it was quite a trip to hear it and to know, like – that it would eventually become like this big, this huge deal just a couple years later. Right. And is this when Tex mentions to Debbie that he's looking at buying a television studio in Vegas? Yep. Okay. Uh, he, he certainly does. And again, he is not Ted Turner, but he's Ted Turner. He's Ted Turner. And I think there's one other thing in this, in this uh, episode that's big before we get to the, before we get to the negative is with Rhonda and bash is in episode eight, Rhonda feels like she saw Bash getting jealous when one of the workers at the Rhapsody was hitting on her. And so she wants to hire Melrose's prostitute boyfriend to pretend to be fixing their hot tub so he can get jealous again and maybe that'll get him to be physically intimate with her. And it sort of works because Bash encourages the prostitute to touch Rhonda and then he ends up joining and having a three-way but Bash at one point also starts getting into it with the male prostitute and Rhonda sort of gets left by the wayside. At least it's what we see. And that's going to open up some avenues of Bash questioning himself in episode 
10, but it did feel like, okay, this is the direction we're heading and quite a crazy scene to watch. Like it felt very like voyeuristic and like kind of like uncomfortable in a good way where you're like, I really should not be watching this right now. This is one of the rare times that the show does get voyeuristic and I think it's appropriate. I think that the sex montage at the beginning of episode four doesn't feel voyeuristic. And I think this just feels very purposeful and extremely well directed. I think that the intentionality is there and I think that's why it, uh, it works out so well. I mean, again, I think the Rhonda Bat stuff generally is, is okay. The batch by himself doesn't really do a lot for me, but putting Rhonda with him was a very good move because it just makes his scenes a lot better in my view. So yeah, um, let's uh, let's talk about the Sam and Ruth and Justine <laughs> plotline. Which, I mean, this is this is really just. And before we get into it, I just want to say again, I want to. Mark Marin and Allison Brie are really really good in this episode. Yeah. Um, so, regardless of my negative feelings, I want to emphasize that what they do here, I mean, it's it's quality quality work. A hundred percent. Yeah, no question about that. So, what happens here is that. Sam tells Ruth about the movie. Justine wants her to audition for a role in the movie. So Ruth is going to go out to L.A. for the day, audition, and her plan is to be back in time for the ball to do the scene with Sheila, which doesn't end up happening. And she auditions for the role. Sam, of course, wants to bring her in for it. Uh, Justine and the producer think someone else is better for the role, but they agree they're going to have drinks later tonight, Ruth and Sam, to catch up. That's where Ruth decides to tell Sam that she loves him, too. They start making out at the bar. They're going to go home and uh, and do the deal, so to speak. But this is when Sam's – he wants, I guess, for some reason in this moment, decide to tell her, hey, you're not going to get the part. And that really bothers Ruth because I think she thought this was going to be like, oh, you auditioning is a formality, but you're going to get an offer. And then when she doesn't, it spoils the mood and she decides ultimately not to go home with him. Jerome, take it away. The Justine stuff just feels completely inconsistent from everything else that they do on the show in terms of trying to tell the story of the struggles of women. And look, admittedly, there are some there are certainly exceptions to the rule. But to have a, a female screenwriter just essentially be go, go in there and have all this power just feels completely antithetical to everything that they've been doing. And you could talk about how talented Justine is. But that does not really represent, in my view, the experience that she probably would have in terms of trying to sell the script. I mean, this thing coming together feels like it's happening within days or weeks, and that also just does not feel realistic at all. And I think that's that is a huge part of the issue. Uh, the Sam Ruth stuff, I just I've never been a fan of it. Um, and this like not being a fan of it makes this episode just very very not. Not fun to watch, I would say. But again, Alison Brie, I mean, she kills the scene uh, when they're outside and they're arguing after uh, he tells her that she's not going to get the part. And I don't know. It just – I don't – it just feels like Justine is being very cold to Ruth, and I don't know, given how close – I don't want to say close, but I, it just feels – I don't know that Justine would react to Ruth the way she does it just doesn't feel like after what we saw in season two, I think that's what what would actually happen because, I mean, they did work closely together. Justine was working on the show with Ruth and Ruth was obviously taking a lot of responsibility. I just don't buy the fact that Justine would dismiss Ruth as easily as she did. And I think that's another part of my problem. It just feels like 
Justine being mean to Ruth is a decision that they're making because they want to set up tension with Sam, not because it's actually what might happen. I don't know. It does, but I don't know that I read it as Justine being mean to her. I do think... I think it's just... I think dismissive is a better word. It does seem, and, and maybe this is something that could be sort of maybe explained better, but it does seem like it's like, oh, if someone wants you to come in with audition, it's basically like the role is yours unless you mess it up. And for all intents and purposes, she did not mess up the role. So maybe she's a new director, a new producer, and just happened to see somebody who was better. And so there's sort of like this Hollywood code she isn't aware of or something. But yeah, it felt we should have it, seen it the, we should have seen another audition that we should have seen the other audition that was good. I though. agree. You know what I also thought would have been a more interesting take is you know after she auditions, Sam comes out to. Uh, the room where the other people are waiting to audition, he's talking to her about going out for drinks later and you see two other women look at each other. And it makes me think like wouldn't have been interesting if she got the part and then something comes out like these two girls say, oh, well, she only got the part because she's sleeping with the director. And that starts to make, you know, the rumor mill. Uh, but no, they they don't go in that direction either. Because I think it would have been a little Me Too adjacent perhaps. Like could have been, could have been. Uh but let's let's be real, Jerome. It was for the role of an English teacher. This is why you're so mad about it. It's really not. I mean, Alison no, Brie, as an English teacher, I mean, respectfully is all I'm going to say. <laughs> did you think she was convincing? They said she wasn't convincing. But did you buy her as an English teacher? I mean, she was Annie on Community. Of course I would believe her as a <laughs> nerdy academic. I mean, I mean, the thing is, is like she behaves like an English teacher. She's yeah, always going life. to the fucking library. Like the idea of her <laughs> not being convincing, the idea of her not being convincing, that's the other part that bothers me is like you set up this idea like she is going to the library. She is literally – she got a temporary ID from the university in Las Vegas to go read more and she's writing reports. I just – it just – this is this is actually making me angrier because okay. it just feels it's it's incredulous to me that they would say she's not believable as an English teacher when that's all she does or seemingly is behaving like an English teacher. Well, then let's 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 get your anger. Hopefully, uh, let, let's get, let's get you away from your anger as we get into episode ten because it's Christmas, Jerome. Who can be angry on Christmas? I mean, a lot of people can be angry on Christmas, but. Not when it's a Christmas television episode, though, and I will say I am glad we did get a Christmas episode in Glow. How could you not? I I, I almost wish we had gotten like a double episode, one where we actually see the entire Christmas carol, and the other is this, where we get like the highlights from it. I just – I wanted to see everything. I wanted to know everything about this uh, show. Me too. Like it was great seeing the scenes we did and everyone did a great job and the crowd loved it. Obviously you couldn't do it more than maybe for like, you know, between Thanksgiving and Christmas itself, but that would have been a fun thing to follow up on in 87 as the show continues. Cause that's the other thing. This is the episode where they drop to us. They're coming back for a whole nother year. And I'm like, wait, what, what happened to everyone kind of being mad that it's going to be around for the rest of 86 and now it's on for another year and everyone seems cool with this. I feel like we're missing a big chunk of the middle there, folks. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's very it's weird. It's very weird. I'm going to jump all over here, folks. But Carmen at the end of the episode says she's leaving Glow to pursue a career as a wrestler on the road, to which I say Godspeed, Carmen. 
Yeah, a, a, a female wrestler in 1986 who is not conventionally attractive. Good luck. Yes. And I do like that they, they have a Secret Santa thing here, and Carmen has Ruth ha- throw this show as the Secret Santa, and then Carmen's Secret Santa to uh, to Cherry's to bring Keith back, and that's where they talk about adopting and stuff. Cherry just crushes it at Secret Santa. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty tremendous, and uh, the scene with the adoption is also really great. I, again, I think that's something that we probably need to talk more about is just the idea of adoption and making the process easier. I mean, this is a whole side rant almost, but I mean, it's, it's pretty great. I think it really does allow them to both start a family, but also able to maintain their family. And uh, Keith and Carrie are so great together. And I, again, it sucks that we don't have a fourth season, but it feels like the Carrie and Keith, it feels like Carrie and Keith got to finish their story, so to speak. And what I do like about it is they don't treat it as a last resort. It is an option. You know, I, I and, and we see that Cherry's obviously probably a little gun shy because they mentioned the miscarriage she had in season one. But Keith presents this as, hey, here's another option we have. It's not that she can't get pregnant again. It's not this or that. They are using the option of adopting here as opposed to just like, a well, we can't do anything else. And I think that's an awesome way to have presented it, too. I mean, I, I almost wonder if in season four, if they could have, uh, because the eighties had this trend of rich white couples adopting black kids. I wonder if they would have gone the other way. I mean, it's pretty remarkable that Webster and different strokes both happened in like the same decade and both have very similar concepts, but I almost wonder if they were going to go in that direction. But I mean, regardless, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was a very sweet moment. And there was a lot of, if again, if there was there was a lot of genuinely emotional moments in this episode, more than I remembered. This wasn't even the last sweet moment having to do with adoption in this episode. Correct. As Sam's Christmas gift to Justine is presenting her with adoption papers to officially make himself her father. Apparently it's not her birth certificate or anything. So, hey, that's nice. Uh, adopting her, I, I mean, it's a really sweet scene, but please don't adopt the wig. Just get the wig off her. Her just sort of like God. shave her head or something? Yes, just for the love of God. I mean, I don't know what it is. I, I don't even know how I got started on this, but ever since I started noticing it, I just – it just – it's really bothering me. Like in the most recent season of Loki, uh, the actor who plays uh, – uh, the female version of Loki is also wearing a really terrible wig, and it is just distracting the hell out of me. And I need to stop. I need to stop doing this to myself. Sophia DiMartino deserves better. Uh, she certainly does. Not, now, I want to be clear: the Americans, the wigs don't bother me because those are it's it's supposed to be a disguise, so it doesn't. Yes, it's not the same. Correct. I I completely agree with you there. Context is key. We get sort of the follow-up to the Bash and Rhonda stuff where Sandy unwittingly outs Paul to Bash as a prostitute and he's all sad and drunk over it and coping with the fact that he's gay and the ramifications this will have on his life. And Debbie helps him out with this situation because he helps him with uh, the financing and pulling money out of Rhapsody and undercutting Texas deals to invest into the television network. So I do, again, like that Debbie – She's had this relationship with Tex, but ultimately she's a bit cutthroat herself and decides that she wants to do what's best for her career rather than uh, her love life here. 
So I really like this too. I think very often with these deals, I think it really does come together this quickly in many cases. So I don't think that that is in any way unrealistic. Like sometimes shit just happens on a dime, on a whim. So I think that actually works and that makes a lot of sense. But yeah, I just, I was, I was a, a big fan of this. It really, again, the setup for season four was right there and just bash owning a network and, Rhonda being a part of it, and yeah, it was it was really good stuff. Yeah, then you got Bash telling Rhonda he wants to move back to L.A. and start a family, which Rhonda seems unsure about. So we would have seen how that would have gone with, you know, Bash realizing. I mean, Rhonda literally yeah, says that. that she has an IUD in her, so I don't know how that's all going to work. Well, Bash is an idiot, so he oh, just says things. Truth. Hey, hey, now, we just established that adoption is an option. So... What are we? What are you saying here, Mister Cuson? I'm not saying nothing. Okay, Artie finally comes to terms with herself, openly saying in front of everybody that she's gay. A lot of this came because she was mad at herself for just seeing all the hate language and not doing anything about it, and she apologizes to Yolanda. What I also like about that moment isn't like they just start kissing and they're back together. It's it's the first step in maybe her and Yolanda repairing at least a friendship, if nothing else. But. For we see, we didn't touch on everything Artie and Alana did this season, but for her to go where from where she was to this, to openly exclaiming in front of everybody, and everyone's like, "Yeah, dude, duh!" Like we know, uh, but it goes to show that like you know Artie need to come with the, the terms with it herself and and say it out loud. And I and I like this moment. Just tremendous stuff. I like that she also does not have to be a terrorist anymore. Uh, she becomes one of the biddies, and uh, it's it's pretty great. She's very good as a biddy in many ways. I think she's almost better. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, good stuff. And then the final scene of this show is everybody's at the airport going their separate ways for Christmas. Debbie's flying back to Omaha to spend the holidays with her parents. And Debbie can't hold in anymore what's going on. And she tells Ruth about Bash buying the television network. She's going to be the president. They're going to start their own wrestling show. And Debbie wants Ruth to direct the show for her. And Debbie makes a comment about how this will be great because you no longer have to chase an acting dream. That's never going to happen. And that, of course, rubs Ruth the wrong way. And says she doesn't want to take the job. Uh, she uses the comment that it's like an off ramp to a road she never got in the first place. And then she boards the plane. And that's where we leave things. I think this was it, – it's almost a bit surprising to see her say no. But it's also not. And it's cool that Debbie is seeing this as this amazing opportunity and, Ruth, and Ruth says no thanks. And how that's going to – what what that's going to look like. I mean like they literally set it up in every way like you know that when they do a big case at the airport. Like they literally do that cliche especially because it is around Christmas. It's perfect and the fact that Ruth is like no. I mean it's a great subversion of that trope. And again, I was really excited by the idea of a season four just for this scene alone because they set it up so well. And just we've had a lot of Debbie and Ruth interactions this season, and they were all really good. And it feels like they're in a really good place to the point where Debbie would feel comfortable making this offer. And then Ruth just turns her down. And it feels like we've almost done a 180. Like Ruth was very unsympathetic to start, but now Debbie is becoming this cutthroat person. And just to see where their relationship would have paid off in season four would have made it all worth it, even if – even if season four had some of the same problems and if Sam and Ruth got together, it really feels like, I don't know. It To me, it almost feels like they would almost, again, I come back to Holton Catch Fire. Like, would they have killed Sam off? And like, they do a real payoff with Ruth and Debbie in the final couple of episodes. Like, it seems like that's very possible. 
Yeah, and it, it almost makes me think like you would have had this counter thing where Debbie's going to end up in a miserable place by the end of season four where Ruth ends up ultimately happy. Uh, I kind of wonder if they would have gone possible. in those directions. Yeah. I don't know. It feels like they would have come to some sort of a resolution very much like, again, call hold and catch fire. The I have an idea or something to that effect. Sure. If Glow had to go through all three seasons of its life without knowing if it's going to get renewed until after the season airs. And that was the case with season three, too. As on September 20th, 2019 is when Netflix announced that it renewed Glow for its fourth and final season. Awesome Kong even it has a storyline AEW where she's dropped in February of 2020 so she can go leave and film. And then in early March of 2020, this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, you might have heard of it. They had to cease production of season four just three weeks in. They they completed an entire first episode and were producing the second episode when it all came and shut down. Didn't really hear much about it until they said in July that it was officially on hiatus because, as Jerome, you had mentioned, there was close contact nature of wrestling. And Allison Brie even commented that something about preserving the show as it is and close contact. It sounds like a little bit of BS with what we saw in this season, but whatever. Uh, and then it officially gets canceled on October 5th of 2020. It is one of uh, a few Netflix shows that get canceled during this time as I am not okay with this. And the society had also been renewed for second seasons, then were canceled. And they announced, by the way, that it was not going to be just the fourth season, but the final season of the show itself, too. So we knew the story was going to wrap up. And while we do mention the close contact stuff again, I think it's the budget of a 20 person cast holding on to all these locations, contracts, things like that is ultimately what brought the show to an end. But uh, this is why I think it is impossible to say the show wasn't canceled too soon. It was literally renewed for a four season. We were told it was going to be final. Things seemed to be in motion for them to close everything up uh, in a tightly knit way. And here we are and uh, haven't had a season four, not a movie, not anything to, to, to wrap things up yet. I just don't, I don't buy for a second that they could have done something. They could have done a, like, why not do a movie that's set 10 years later and do like a reunion thing? Like, would it have been perfect? No, but you could have gotten some resolution. I'm so glad you said that because I think what a perfect way for this show to have ended. This show was inspired by the Glow documentary. Do a faux Glow documentary with these characters in this glow universe, like 10 or so years later, I would have loved that. Yeah. And have like Sam directed or something like, I I don't know, man, like there's a way, there is a way out and it just feels like Netflix didn't want to do it and it's bullshit. And it just, it makes me really mad. Like I'm still mad all these years later that the show got canceled. It deserved so much better. And again, like you're literally, you're literally talking about, uh, a women's wrestling show that probably was canceled too soon because glow was still really popular. And then you end up doing the same thing and it just, it feels shitty. And I know that there was a lot of discussion after season three and uh, you know, in the early months of the pandemic, like uh, I know that there was something about like uh, some of the, the people of color uh, addressing some of the issues that they had with the show. Did you read anything about that? No, not at all. Actually. I don't have it with me, but I know that there was uh, there was going to be something. Um, I guess some sort of discussion was had about that too, and yeah, because I do see that you you have some quotes here, and um, yeah, it's just it sucks. It really sucks that this sh- the the show uh, did not get to finish a story. And I know I use that kind of uh, in a colloquial way, but it genuinely sucks that that this show was canceled too soon. It really 
it, it really feels like a fourth and final season could have been the best, just like Halt and Catch Fire. I think in many ways, Halt and Catch Fire's fourth season felt like the perfect payoff to a show that wasn't always perfect, but they really were able to bring things together. And again, I go, I look at that that sixth episode of season three. It really feels like they cracked something, and it feels like we could have gotten more of that in season four. And I just would have loved to have seen how they could have followed up on that episode, especially. For sure. And, you know, something else that is sort of talked about in a lot of these quotes is obviously Liz Flayive and Carly Mensch put out something pretty much as soon as the show got canceled about, you know, oh, it's you know, unfortunate this is happening. But also you hear the actors later say that nobody really said anything at the time. And I think they read the room properly like. Hey, the world's crazy right now. Literally, people are dying. So to come out here and be woe is me about our show getting canceled would have been pretty tone deaf. So I think it, it was smart for the showrunners to come out and say something because you kind of have to. Um, and I think they did it as, in a, a fairly enough diplomatic way. But for the rest of the actors and actresses, they decided to just keep their mouth shut because, well, bigger bigger things happening in the world other than our little show getting canceled. But so it's been in the subsequent years when you hear sort of the 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 stuff about it coming from from the people as far as stories in season four, there isn't too much that's been said. Uh, it was said that Alison Brie was going to direct an episode. I would have loved to have seen what that looked like. Um, well, she directed an episode in season three too. Oh, did she? Yeah, there was uh there was an episode that she wasn't in at all. And she directed it. I forget. It's either episodes. I think it was episode seven. Episode seven, Hollywood homecoming. Okay. Yep. And again, sure. episode 10 ends with uh, directed by Lynn Shelton. Just got to mention that one more time. Again, another another emotional scene directed by Lynn Shelton. This kills me every time. And I do want to mention Anya Adams is the person who directed episode six that we both love so much. Uh, she did some work on Blackish, The Good Place. Uh, and I think she even won uh, an award uh, for some of her work, an NAACP Image Award for outstanding uh, directing in a comedy series for Glow. So how about that? There you go. Um, yeah, I think bringing her on as a director certainly adds uh, an important voice and would have been great to have seen her direct even more. But alas, yeah, Lynn Shelton also did the Christmas episode. Uh, fortunately, uh, Annie Adams and Lynn Shelton did not do episode nine, so we don't have to th- uh, throw them under the bus for that. Uh, Mark Marin mentioned in an interview with Dave Franco that him and Al Sabri were going to hook up in season four, which I feel like is kind of a duh. Uh, and then Alison Brie in an AV club interview said something about Ruth was going to go back home for a little while, think about quitting wrestling and maybe get sucked in. It was very coy about I won't say if that is or is not the the season one episode. But I do like that when like the anniversary of Glow came around, Kate Nash shared some episodes from season four. Uh, he basically said in so many words, Netflix finished the story, you cowards. Carbon shared a video for self wrestling outside of Glow in season four without a look like. And then I do really like this uh, – and I'll share some of these in the show notes. There's an Instagram story of a lot of the Glow cast members and uh, writers and such getting together during the uh, the WGA strike. So that's really that's really cool to see. I always like seeing when like I feel like for a lot of shows it's like you get there, you do your job, and then you go home, and that's it. But there are those casts that stay tight knit afterwards, and that's always pretty heartwarming to see. And and for a show like Glow that I know from listening and reading a lot of interviews that it meant so much to so many people to see them all come back together on the picket line stuff is a really it's just a really cool thing as a fan. So. I'll share some of these stuff in the in the show notes. So I I wonder, like in episode one, would we have fast forwarded to 2010 in Omaha and Ruth is visiting a Cinnabon and sees Jean? Hmm, that could be. 
uh, mention makes some snide comment about his Cubs lunchbox, and he tells her to get the hell out. <laughs> Make a reference to Nebraska football, <laughs> and then he gets in a she gets in a taxi cab with a guy in a sweater. <laughs> oh, we're off the rails. We are. We are off the rails. Uh, but that is season three of Glow. Uh, what are your overall thoughts, Jerome? I think season one still remains my favorite, even though I think season three uh, has the what is the best episode. It just feels like that's the story that they told was really tight. And this one goes a little bit all over the place. I think there's a lot of really positive things that happen, but there's there's some real clunkers in here as well. I mean, episode nine just it really made me mad and. I'm really glad that episode 10 was good because I feel like I could walk away having a positive feeling. I just, I, I really feel like they should have stayed away from Ruth and Sam. I just think that is a third rail. They should not have touched if they wanted to. I, I think it would have almost been more interesting if they had cut it off. Like if they had said, no, we are not going to be romantic. We just professionally respect each other and have a deep friendship. That would have been so much more interesting to me if that's the direction that they had gone in. Uh, as opposed to uh, what they did. But, I mean, again, the performances are great. I think that Allison Brie and, and Betty Gilpin, I would love to see them do an, another show together at some point because I think that they, they were really good together. I mean, Betty Gilpin, it just – it feels like that she kind of just missed out on some things. And I don't know. I really – because, I mean, even in the movie like The Hunt, which I don't think is particularly good – uh, she plays like this Ann Coulter-like character, uh, but she's really, really good in it. And it just feels like we 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 need more we need more of her in in the Marvel Cinematic Universe or or a, another prestige show. It would just be really great to see uh, her uh, continue to get elevated. But I do also want to say that speaking of people and their follow-ups, uh, Mark Marin is in a spectacular episode of Reservation Dogs uh, in season two. I would strongly recommend that people check that out. If you are jonesing for another Mark Maron performance, um, it's one of the best episodes of the series in uh, a series that is also uh, a classic uh, for the new, for the, for this decade, I would say one of the best shows of the decade Reservation Dogs and uh, Mark Maron is in one episode. And he's really good in it. Uh, those are my thoughts, Kevin, yours. Definitely in agreement that season one is still my favorite of the three. Season three, I did not feel as sad as I thought coming out. I didn't feel angry, but I do remember like I had the same feeling you did with the episode with seasons one through four. Like, man, was I wrong about season three being good? And then five and six made me feel a lot better. And while I do feel like seven through ten are all there's some unevenness in there, I do feel like, like you said, it ended on a strong enough note. And there was enough hanging threads that interested me that I would have loved to see what a season four looked like. Like I, I 100% would have watched uh, season four, especially knowing it was a final one without question. There's a, it just feels like such an open book and something that, again, you could so easily wrap up with a faux documentary or something like that. And it seems like everyone's on board with it. Who knows? Stranger things have happened. But if we leave it as is, uh, I am glad this is the last show that we uh, ended canceled too soon with. Uh, the the end of another journey, another podcasting journey for, for the two of us here. So – yeah. Yeah, that's that's really all I could say about Glow. I think we've kind of we've done a fair evaluation of it and maybe not as good as we thought, but still canceled too soon. So I guess we're on the plugs part. We have nothing else to plug and enter the real world because they are sunsetting the podcast arm of that website. 
uh, and I don't write anything over there. So I will say for everyone who's listened to anything I've ever done on that website, whether it's the stuff I do with Jerome, whether it's the Lost Podcast, whether it's uh, Flooping the Pig, just thank you. It's been it's been great having another outlet to uh, to come out and just talk about stuff that especially isn't wrestling, but just to get the chance to revisit some of my favorite shows and do a deeper dive onto them and discover a lot of shows that I may not have checked out without the uh, the impulse to do so, to do it for for this podcast. So that's been really fun to to have. And, you know, at least myself, Justin and Brad will continue with uh, Adventure Time stuff over at uh, Flooping the Pig, uh, which we is now its own separate feed. So if you look at that in Spotify or anywhere else, you'll find that. And I think we're going to be exploring some non-Adventure Time stuff to sort of fill in uh, some more episodes. So uh, do subscribe to that if you do. And if I happen to do any more podcasts or whatever else on uh, some other new ventures with Jerome and whoever else, uh, follow me on Twitter while I'm still there at KFord13. And then I'm also on Blue Sky, if that's your thing, uh, at Kevin Ford. But Jerome, you've got some other things uh, closing out your your time on Enter the Real World here in the month of December. Yep. So Brian and I are also uh, doing kind of a farewell tour to superheroes and not a moment too soon because, boy, howdy, am I burned out on superheroes. But we are going to be t- – we are talking about – Guardians of the Galaxy 3, we are talking about the Spider-Verse sequel, so we're going to end on a a high note. Uh, That's one of our goals. Uh, Brian and I, we are planning on podcasting after this, but uh, we're doing a ranking the Star Wars uh, episode, and I don't know that we're going to be friends after that, so uh, we'll put that on the back burner. Uh, We are also going to do a discussion on Iron Man 3. Uh, We, because of a bet that we made with... uh, with Matt and Ben, it was put into the Pantheon. We never actually did an episode discussing it, uh, but we are finally going to sit down and uh, rewatch Iron Man 3 uh, as well. So that'll be a, a nice treat. And uh, then who knows? Uh, we'll be back at some point, but thanks everybody for your support here at The Real World. And uh, yeah, follow me on Twitter and Blue Sky at your MC 1985. Maybe by the time you're listening to this, uh, Twitter is gone. Here's hoping. Uh, but hopefully Blue Sky is still around because it seems like a much more fun place these days than Twitter. Thank you, everybody, very much for listening. We'll see you some other time, some other place. So uh, is our next podcasting venture going to finally explore the history of the IFTR? <laughs>